I was going up the escalator to the cafeteria. I'm walking to get my tray and my utensils. Take like a few steps. I'm like, wait, I, I know this guy. And it's Luka Doncic. Andrew McAvich joins us on the latest edition of the Let's Go State podcast, fresh off the 2020 Olympics. An intriguing and inspiring conversation with the Penn State alum about his time in Tokyo, what it was like floating around Olympic Village, and his various battles with adversity. Our conversation with Andrew McAvich starts now. Andrew, few people have been fortunate to live out the stretch of time you just went through at the Olympics. How would you sum up your experience in Tokyo? I wish I could find the right words to puzzle it, like how I can explain it, how it was at the Tokyo Olympics. Um, but I'm still trying to like jigsaw puzzle it out. <laughs> but it was phenomenal. I mean, even though it was a little ambiguous before going to Tokyo, how things were going to be with COVID restrictions, it was delightful to be there. I think the Japanese government did a great job of making sure safety protocols were there. And put that all aside, being with other athletes uh, who have similar and completely different stories as well, all come together and representing their countries at the highest level. Um, it was a surreal feeling. Like, you know, you share something that so many few people in the world can say they've done. And it's an experience I'll keep with me for the rest of my life. You mentioned that it was a surreal experience. When did it actually hit you that you were in Tokyo at the Olympics? So we, when we landed in Tokyo, we were stuck for 11 hours at the airport going through our processing. Um, it turned out there was a false positive among one of the U.S. team members. So they keep, kept us in a room and we stayed there for 11 hours as they do like further testing on certain individuals. So to, by the time I got to the Olympic Village, it was four in the morning, three in the morning. And we showed up, we're on a golf cart going to our a building. We put our stuff down and then me and my team were like, hey, let's go get the cafeteria. It's open 24 hours, let's get something to eat. And we made our way to the cafeteria, walking along other buildings that we see different national flags outside. And it was all very quiet, a little bit of lights, only shining from the cafeteria was on and something in the air just felt different, unique, magical in a way. <laughs> and that's when it hit me. I, I just like, I kind of stood right outside the cafeteria and looked around and that's when it hit me. It was, and I, I knew, you know, when the sun comes up and all the athletes are walking around, this was probably the only time that I'm going to wake up this, like be up this early and have the whole entire like Olympic village to myself. And like, I really cherished that. Holy smokes. There's a lot to unpack right there. So first, you were stuck in the airport for 11 hours because of a false positive, and um, they had to continue testing, it sounds like. What did you do in that 11-hour span? Slept. I was so jet-lagged. I just slept. They put us in a room. Um, some of our teammates have funny pictures because I was just, like, cramped up in this tiny little chair, made myself into a ball, and, like, threw a coat over myself and just tried to sleep as much as possible. Um, what happened was um, – not from a fencing team, but from another team, someone tested false positive, like I said, and they had to retest him and whoever was sitting close to him on the airplane had to get retested, put in a separate room. And some of my team members weren't even able to go to the Olympic village for the first like two weeks. Cause they had to stay in a hotel and do like, um, like special, um, quarantine that they had to oversee the government had to oversee so they had like special transportation to the venue or to the uh, training facility but they weren't allowed to go to the olympic village for at least like 10 days 11 days until their quarantine was up 
That's insane. Wow. Yeah. All right. So then you go to Olympic Village and you're still awake and you go to the cafeteria, which is open 24 hours. You had talked about that ahead of time, ahead of going to Tokyo on our first edition of the podcast. When you actually sat down in the cafeteria, you looked around and you saw multiple different athletes from completely different countries. What was that moment like? I did a lot of people watching. I made sure I would eat slow and just look around and soak in everything, looking, seeing different athletes from different countries. Um, me and my teammate would actually play a game where we would guess what sport they were uh, representing, um, which we did fairly well because we would like go up and like exchange pins. This is that thing that like athletes do, especially in the cafeteria, because this is the most um, uh, conjunction that we would have is with athletes is in the cafeteria. So we would play this game where we exchange pins, small dialogue, network and everything. Um, but yeah, a lot of people watching, a lot of just eating slow and just looking around and soaking everything up. What is the exchanging of the pins? So every athlete, when you show up, you, you get a, a bag of pins, right? And it says for hours, it was like USA, Tokyo, had an American flag and a Japanese flag next to it. And you go around and you just exchange pins with people from other countries and you have a competition with your, at, with your fellow teammates to see who can get more pins from other countries. It, it was, it's cool. It's a great way to like keep your mind off of you know, the stress of competing, the, the anxiousness of competing. Um, I did not win getting the most pins, but I think I did a good job. <laughs> was there ever a, a moment where you were sitting in the cafeteria, looking around, eating your food nice and slow that you saw an athlete that you were like, whoa, that's so-and-so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going up the escalator to the cafeteria. I'm walking to get my tray and my utensils. And I see someone, I look away. I do a few, like take like a few steps. I'm like, wait, I, I know this guy, take a steps back. And it's Luka Doncic. I try to keep it cool. I was like, Hey man, like, want to, want to grab a photo? And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I was like, cool. So I had his teammate take a photo. Um, I met a bunch of tennis players. I met Djokovic, Mevdadev, uh, Giorgio, uh, Camila Giorgio, another tennis player. Um, and a lot of athletes that aren't well-known, um, but super cool to meet them as well. That's cool. Not everybody can say that. They met Luca in Olympic Village uh, during uh, while you're eating a little food. He, so. he was so nonchalant, even though he was carrying his country to the, uh, I think it was the semifinals they reached. Yeah, I think it was the semifinals. Um, but he was he was cool. Like he didn't act like he was above everyone else. He was there to enjoy himself and just soak in the Olympics like many other first-time Olympians. Obviously, you spent time outside of the cafeteria because you had competition and there you were there for a reason. So um, aside from the cafeteria, take us from the timeline of after the 11 hour quarantine session, um, if it's fair to to call it that back to Olympic Village, and then you get to your room, and then ultimately you have time to, to train. Absolutely. Um, so our daily schedule was wake up, breakfast, um, grab, the, uh, grab the bus to the training center that we had. Uh, we were lucky enough that the United States had its own separate uh, training facility that was like 30 minutes away by bus. We would spend most of our days there. We would have lunch there, keep training, do our rehab, work with personal trainers that we had, have dinner, and then take the bus back to the Olympic Village and do the same thing the next day. 
once you actually got to the arena for the first time and you got to look around and just having watched your Instagram stories, it looked like it was pretty dark in there and um, you didn't really have any idea exactly where you were. What was that setting like? Walked into the arena and got very familiar with the layout and I was just trying to get a mental picture of it. Took a few photos and I just really wanted to like see myself on the strip, just like visualize myself on the strip, uh, you know, way to help me prepare when I'm just competing. Um, I think visualization and fencing is and not just in fencing, but any sport is super important. And it kind of prepares you mentally before you get on the strip and like fence. So definitely was there, sat down, soaked everything in. Um, and the arena was really cool. Like we had some really cool lights. Um, the tech that was put into the arena was really cool. And I was, I was just, once I saw it, I was like, I'm ready to compete. You're ready to compete. And then one of the most iconic photos of you and USA fencing and really the entire Olympics in, in, in totality came out with you after, I believe it was your first round victory. I believe so. Yeah. That you have just this energetic empathy about you just seizing the moment, right? Why was that? Why is that photo so iconic to you? I was just in the moment. Um, I was totally into it, zoned in, totally at peace with, uh, with myself. And like it felt right to just show my body language, just express myself. I didn't want to hold anything in. And I guess that's where the photo came. I remember scoring the last touch and I just had all this immense force. I just wanted to express, and, uh, and that's what I did. <laughs> What'd you do after that photo? And obviously after that first round matchup, you're celebrating with uh, your teammates and coach, but what did the timeline look like from there? Went back to our little like corner that we have with the rest of the team where our gear is and the trainers um, are at and the managing team. Grabbed my headphones, put the music in, grabbed my hat, mentally swagged myself out again and was just looking forward to the next bout. Which came when? It was an hour, just roughly an hour after the first match ended. So people don't realize that, like you're talking about an hour's time difference from the first time you compete to the second time that you compete. Other sports, not the same case, right? You got basketball, which is a couple of days difference. Um, swimming, depending on the event, could be a couple of days difference, but Mentally having to refocus yourself from an hour's time span, why is that so challenging? Oh, it's so challenging. Uh, I think people don't, especially if you're not familiar with sport fencing, um, you put so much, not just physical energy, but mental energy into just one bout. And then you have that hour break waiting for the next bout. And in that time, it's so important to just stay focused, not get too relaxed and keep your eye on the prize and make sure that you're mentally prepared. I mean, everyone's there is physically in the same shape, more or less. You're in training for years for this moment. And it all comes down to how strict and disciplined you are mentally. Um, so for me, like I said, I love putting in my music in, um, look good, feel good, um, and just kind of bob my head to music. You go from competition number one to competition number two, taking the strip for the second time during the Olympics in an hour span, you've got your music, you're swagged out, you're feeling good. And then you go to competition number two. 
what specifically do you remember about the second time you took the strip? So before you get on the strip, you're in the call room. And in the call room, they're there to check your equipment because before every round, they make sure your equipment's working. Um, and you sit in these cubicles facing your opponent right there. It's like a 10, 15 minute period where you're just waiting to get on the strip. You're by yourself. You don't have any, any other teammates or coaches that can be in the call room because you're waiting to go out onto the playing field. And my opponent's right there. And my opponent, Korean, ranked number one in the world going into the Olympics. Um, to me, he seemed like he was a little angel and playing Temple Run and like listening to music. <laughs> and um, I just, I felt really good. I was like, listen, I'm not going to stress myself out. I'm just, you know, playing this game and everything. I could see, I could tell by the corner of his eye, he was like looking at what I was doing and that was crazy. <laughs> but um, you're in the call room and then you get called out. And like I said, like he was number one going to the competition, but for me, I didn't really care. And I kind of shocked myself at the, in the first half of the bout. Um, I felt really strong and it pulled off a bunch of actions that I thought I wouldn't have been able to. But then in the second half, like I said, it's all become mental dis discipline and I kind of something clicked. I think I got too agitated with one call that the referee made that I wasn't happy with. And I kind of let that sink in too much. Once you took the strip and you go into the second half of that bout, what do you feel you learned most about yourself knowing that you probably got too agitated based off of one call? First half went really well. Definitely shocked myself. Um, pulled off some big moves, um, some risky moves that paid off. And at that moment, I was like, I can do this. Second half. Like I said, it comes down to discipline, and that's my big takeaway. Um, I definitely think I can compete with these like high-level athletes, and it just comes down to being disciplined and um, sticking on to the right actions that work and not losing focus. And I think if that comes into play, if I can put in the puzzles for Jigsaw for that case, uh, I think things in the future will work out. At that point, you're done with the individual side of things you turn your attention towards the team event and you end up with an injury during that bout. What happened? Um, I kind of, what is that saying in basketball? Uh, got crossed over, right? <laughs> I kind of crossed over myself, if you can picture it. What happened was, um, and I'm so disappointed that I got this injury because I felt really good into that bout. And it was a really close bout against the Hungarians, which we were facing. I pretended to go in for the attack, and then last minute I wanted to make I made him fall short. I made my my opponent prematurely lunge, made him fall short, so he missed. And I wanted to go forward, but I didn't predict the distance between me and my opponent, so I kind of wanted to slow down really quickly so he couldn't um, hit me while I was changing my transition forward. And I kind of caught my leg, and I was already dealing with a. Um, uh, semi pulled like hamstring. Um, and so I didn't want to put my too much impact on my leg when I was like moving forward. So I kind of like let my bottom of my foot, my ankle like roll forward. And I guess I let it roll too much because it kind of gave out, had that little like click. And I knew from that second, I kind of just 
fell down and I knew something was wrong. You fall down, you knew something was wrong. And in that moment, it's got to be frustrating, emotional. What was going through your head at that time? So you only have a 10 minute timeout, medical timeout. So we had the competition medic come over. She asked me what was going on. And I said, I'm having pain. I'm having pain in my foot. So she calls over our team um, uh, medic member. He comes over and I just gave him the look. Like, I was like, listen, whatever you're going to try to do, I don't know if it's going to work. So he said, okay, let's, let's get it wrapped up. He, we took off the sock, the shoe, wrapped up the foot. And I still had doubts. And I, I was already so upset that it already happened. So I, we wrapped up the foot, I put the shoe back on. I tried putting weight on it. And even the minimum amount of pressure I put on my foot, I was getting this sharp shooting pain. And it was such, it was such a, uh, it was such a difficult, but it was the right move. And I looked over at my coach and I was like, listen, take me out. Uh, there's no reason for me to, like, I, there's nothing I could do to help the team any further because I was just a liability at that point. So I called myself out and my teammate went in and um, just started cheering. I was the loudest person in the room and just did what I could for my team and just cheer them on and be supportive as, as much as possible. What was the biggest mental hurdle that you felt you were trying to put in the back of your mind during that moment, but ultimately couldn't? how serious the injury was, I guess. Uh, I was definitely, even though I was cheering my teammates on, in the back of my head, I, was, I really wanted to get answers. I was asking our team doctor, I was like, listen, like, how soon as possible can I get back to the Olympic Village and get seen by other doctors? Because they had, um, in the Olympic Village, I mean, people don't know, they have a, like a huge mini clinic with like, two MRIs and like four x-rays. So whatever happens, you're taken care of. Um, but going back, yeah, that was definitely in the back of my head. I was so worried about how this was going to impact my training in the future, um, how serious the injury was, oh, and the overall status of you know this injury. Frustration, emotion, and worry are the three words that I'm going to use for that moment. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's really hard to just explain it. I. I've had some minor injuries in the past, but this one definitely kind of made me gasp a bit. And, you know, I played hockey, I played soccer. Whenever I went down, I got back up and I kept going. Same thing with fencing. And, but this time it was different. And I, I was, I was worried and frustrated, like you said. So those emotions are in play. And then you get back to Olympic village and you start to think about the reality of the situation, your dreams, the hard work, the hours of craft that you put in to what you do start to hit. In that moment, how did you use adversity to your advantage? At first, I, I, I started getting frustrated. I started getting angry. Why me? Like, why does this have to happen to me? Um, I, I put so much work and dedication to this. Why am I the one that has to get injured? 
and I don't wish an injury on any other athlete, but I was just thinking, why me? Then I go back to um, what I worked with my, um, my mental trainers and they talk about, you know, everything happens for a reason. You can only control what you can actually control what's tangible in front of you. So I started loosening up. I started accepting what was happening and I realized, listen, I'm stronger than this and I can definitely overcome it. And what doesn't kill me will make me stronger in the future. What did you do in the hours that you got back to Olympic village and you started to process all that? I was flooded with text messages from my parents because <laughs> they were so worried and they were being super supportive. Um, my family and my close friends that were watching, they, I, they sh uh, gave me some text messages, um, sent me photos, WhatsApp messages. And they're like, hey, do you need anything? Um, don't worry, everything's going to be good. And I, I needed that. I think at the moment I needed that close-knit community that has always been supporting me for the last like, few years and just put me in the right mindset and, and kind of simmer down and accept things that what was going to happen um, leading up to the final diagnostic of the injury. For an Olympian that was injured during the Tokyo Olympics, it's a perspective that very few individuals have in the entire world. When you think about that small knit group that you have, why are they so important? This goes back to a post I just recently was posted on Instagram by this woman who represented the New Zealand um, national team at an Olympics in the past. And she made this post talking about reflecting after the Olympics, um, reflecting with everything that's happened leading to the Olympics. And it was something I really cherished because I was in abysmal of trying to find the words that matched to explain how I felt once I settled down back uh, from the games. And I really have to like thank this, like the close, it's really hard to explain how you feel because not many people understand the challenges, the training, the competitions, the frustrations, the highs and lows that you go through being uh, an athlete, not just trained to the Olympics, but also competing at the Olympics and everything that follows after. But having people that try to understand and want to be part of your journey makes a huge difference. You don't feel alone because many times in my journey, I felt alone. I, I, the biggest battles I had, some of the biggest battles I had were, were with myself. A lot of um, self-questioning, self-doubts, questioning if this is, if can I do this? Is, is this the right path I'm choosing? Um, uh, will, will I try to make the Olympics and not make it and then feel worse about myself? But having, like I said, having the, that support group who want to understand and be there and, and be helpful, I can't thank them enough. You know, there's so many lessons that can be learned for the people listening to this podcast right now of exactly what you just said. Everybody goes through self-doubt and am I supposed to be doing this at some point in their life? With that message, you've been able to learn a lot about yourself just through conversation with you. What is the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself since being back in the United States? Gosh. <laughs> I wish I could have a clear answer for you, but 
I'm Mitch, I might have to get back to you on that. Um, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, one thing I can say that has been coming up to light is totally being okay with myself and who I am right now. Uh, with everything that's happened in the past, everything I've learned, I can take it just, I can take it beyond just a sporting world and use it to my professional experience in the future. Um, or when I start raising a family, everything I've learned is from a good place. And I can't wait to like, utilize the tools I've had uh, for the future with anything I do. What comes next for you? I don't know. <laughs> I want a medal. I really want a medal. I'm not done yet. I was so dissatisfied with myself, but in a good way in Tokyo, I had a great experience, but I, I've got a bigger appetite for Paris 2024 than I had going to Tokyo. And I can't wait to see what's in store. I seen the other athletes, hearing other athletes' stories from their um, overcoming their challenges. I definitely think there's room for improvement for me. I definitely think I can get faster and stronger. I can definitely push my body more. I can definitely push myself mentally more. And I think the experience I had leading to Tokyo was a great learning curve for me. And I could definitely use it to my advantage and tweak a few things and just make myself a Superman. Well, there's no doubt that you are hungry and ambitious for 2024, <laughs> as well as uh, learning more about yourself and what really comes next. So looking forward to catching up with you in 2024. Let's continue this conversation. I think the mental side is important for everybody that is listening because everybody goes through it, right? You're either in the midst of adversity, you're coming out of adversity, or you're about to head into adversity. Andrew, appreciate your time and congratulations on achieving a lifelong dream of competing in the Olympics. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch. Thank you.